welcome to another episode of Rockstar Violinist. This time we are with jazz violin sensation Christian Howes. Just as a warning, there will be some talk early in this episode about drugs and prison. Nothing really graphic or detailed, but if you have some little listeners around and these are not topics you want to explain yet, if you skip ahead to about 16 minutes in the interview, you'll miss most of the details and you'll be able to avoid any awkward questions. We're going to do something a little different with this episode. This is a long episode because Christian has so much cool stuff to talk about. So we're going to fly in some of his music while he's talking instead of taking so many breaks. You can get info about what you're hearing in the show notes. Most of this music is from his latest album, American Spirit. I have it, and it's fantastic. This podcast is sponsored by Electric Violin Shop. Christian is a wonderful friend, and he talks a lot about our shop, so I'll let him handle the commercial as we're chatting. Christian lives in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina, just a few hours away from me. So I took the opportunity to enjoy an easy drive into the mountains and hang out for a while in his home studio and chat. So here's my hangout with Christian Howes, rock star violinist. started playing at a very young age as well. It's a very common story, it seems like. Yeah, I started when I was five, uh, Suzuki. My parents started me uh, when I was five, and, you know, a famous uh, thing that Emmanuel Axe said, that uh, kids, you know, most kids, they start at five, they do it, uh, if they start young, they do it to please their parents and their teachers, and we hope that they fall in love with it eventually. And I remember the first time I fell in love with it, uh, I was eight years old, I was practicing with my mom, or refusing to practice for my mom. <laughs> and my dad, you know, she called my dad down, the, the big guns. And I remember him, you know, he would use my full name, Christian, you know, uh, instead of, you know, normally they would call me Chris, but you know, when I was in trouble, he would say, Christian, you know. And, he's, and he, So he came down that particular day, and like a lot of days when I was giving my mom a hard time, he said, look, this is the deal. If you're not going to practice, I'm taking your violin back to the shop. That's it. Otherwise... You want to keep the violin? You got to practice. That's the first time I decided, for my own, on my own, to 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 uh, that I wanted to do it. It was more important to me, you know, to practice. And so, remember that when I was eight. When I was probably thirteen or fourteen, was the next sort of landmark um, moment that happened for me when I was at the Chautauqua Summer Performing Arts Program. It was like a six-week summer camp. I must have been fourteen or fifteen, and there was this. Uh, and we, you know, we would do orchestra stuff and chamber music and private lessons all day long. I remember there was this girl named Ruby, and uh, she was a year younger than me, so she must have been like 13, and I must have been 14, something like that. And she was playing the Brook Violin Concerto, and it was so amazing. It was so passionate and, like, wise. It was like, you know, a 13-year-old person, but she had this, like, 75-year-old woman's soul. And so that really stirred up a lot for me, not just the passion for the music, but I think I was, you know, sort of the stirrings of adolescence, if yeah, you will, sure. you know, and uh, 
And so that inspired me to uh, either my love of, you know, Ruby's music or the fact that I had a crush on her or whatever it was. It all kind of mixed together. And so I remember that was the moment I was like, okay, I'm going to practice three hours a day. And I started practicing three hours a day. And when I came back from that summer, everybody noticed a difference. And, you know, and uh, sort of my, you know, started winning some awards and stuff like that. And it was was kind of this big leap. Um, So that was, and I knew then that I wanted to be a concert violinist. And I wanted to play, you know, the concertos and stuff. That's what I wanted to do, like everybody. Um, But the next thing that happened was probably about 16 years old, sophomore in high school. Some of my buddies had started this, like, garage rock band or, like, a basement rock band. And um, they were doing, like, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, and and then some of the 80s alternative music, too, like R.E.M. and whatever, you know, Violent Femmes, you know, whatever it was. (laughs) You know, I think we probably grew up the same time in the 80s, yeah. Um, and, um, so my buddies, you know, they played drums, guitar, bass, probably each of them had probably like one or two lessons on their instrument. And of course I've been playing for 10 years. I was working on Paganini. I was, you know, I'd done all the, all the Suzuki books, you know, a bunch of solo Bach, you know, some of the concerto repertoire at this point. Um, but I came into that first rehearsal and I felt like the one that was like the oddball out. Like I didn't know what was going on because they were doing... You know, really three things that I had never done before. Number one was it was a different kind of music. It was rock music. Sure. And which I listened to, but I hadn't actually tried to play it. I didn't know what that was going to look like. Uh, Number two, they were creating stuff, you know, in terms of improvising and arranging and harmonizing and, like, even coming up with their own songs. They were writing songs with lyrics and everything. That was new. Number three was that they seem to have an awareness about how the music was put together. I like to use the analogy of, like, you know, a mechanic who looks under the hood to see how does the car run. Right. You know, whereas as a violinist, we're more like a race car driver. We just drive the thing. We, you know, but if you had to, you know, if I had to fix a flat tire, I'd be hit in the mouth. You don't right. really know what to do. So that intrigued me because it would be like, oh, you mean I have to figure out how this bass part works and how it goes with the guitar part and how the drum part works. So those three things, those three, I, I would say that it was a deficit in my training, in my skill set as a classical musician. Now, obviously, there's so many great things that I got from my classical training uh, that I'm extremely grateful for, and I still love classical music. But that intrigued me because I thought, I want to be able to write my own music, I want to be able to figure out how music works, and I want to play different styles of music. I want to do it on the violin. Um, so for a few years, I was kind of emulating the you know rock guitar heroes and stuff. And I played a little electric bass, a little guitar, a little electric guitar. And I started emulating it on my violin. And then I was like, I really want to play violin like this. So of course, that's when I needed to amplify. Yeah. And I had to start figuring out how can I get a distortion pedal and you know all that stuff because I just need to be loud enough to compare to compete with the drums and then let alone to get the kind of sounds you know the rock sounds and I don't know if you or a lot of your listeners would know how much of a rock background I actually have I think because people always associate with me with uh, being a jazz violinist but the fact is that I, I love to rock with you know, with the best of them. I mean, I love, you know, and so that was a big part of how I got into jazz eventually. So after a couple of years, I still loved rock music, but I felt in some ways like I wanted other challenges also. So I started playing in college with a, a blues singer, and then I played with another, like, kind of a bluesy rock band, kind of like a hippie rock band, if you will, you know. Um, and then I started playing with a fusion band, and I started playing with this kind of a fusion rock guitar player named Paul Brown from Columbus, Ohio, who was, had a lot of John McLaughlin influence. Um, 
And uh, so I was starting to branch out. I was, you know, while I was still studying classical music at Ohio State University. Um, but that was a tricky period in my life because, you know, during the end of high school, I sort of, I would say I started tuning out and acting out. Um, and this is a big, you know, now at 45, this is something that, I, that really informs the work that I do with kids and, and young people. Um, I mean, teenagers, I think, especially teenage boys, age 16 to 24, I feel like I can really, I've finally gotten to a point in my life where I can really speak to them um, in a way that I feel like can, can resonate to them. And, and you know, because what happens is if we have a vision for something we want to do, like you have a vision, like you're, you know, you're an electric violinist. You, you, you've got two kids. You know, you, you're passionate about content. You're passionate about right. learning. I mean, you're passionate about BMX biking with your son. Yeah. I mean, this, it shows. You know, and I think Matt Belt, that guy's got a vision. He's got all these things he's excited about, and he's doing them, and it turns you on. I mean, it lights you up. You know, and um, when we don't have that vision, something that fills us up, we can either act out or tune out. And I was doing both at the end of high school, and it's for a variety of reasons, and it doesn't really, I don't really need to get into why or, you know, sure. whatever, but I was, I was tuning out, I was acting out, you know, the, how would I tune out, tune out by smoking weed, you know, tune out by partying, you know, on the weekends with my friend, with, you know, in the high school, it's, a lot of us were looking for that social connection, we're, feel, we're looking to feel um, needed, sure. important get attention, you know, popular, you know, all these kinds of things. We want girls to like us if, if we're straight dudes, you know. Yeah. And uh, all those things I was struggling with, you know, for whatever reasons. So I was tuning out by smoking weed, by, you know, by drinking, by sort of just being outside of the house, just, just like looking for this, looking for that. And when I went to college, I was still doing that, you know, tuning out and acting out in certain ways too, acting out by being rebellious and carrying this rebel image as like a um a flag or something like hey look at me i'm a rebel you know and we can all do that in constructive ways i mean i sure. mean i had long hair for many years and i don't see anything wrong with that and you've got some really cool tattoos and you know i mean but there's a point at which you cross a line where you're hurting yourself you're hurting other people so that's what was happening i was i was tuning out i was acting out i didn't have a vision i didn't have like a you know like a really something i was passionate about I mean, I was still passionate about music. I was passionate about other things, but I, I wasn't really. I was kind of turned away from that stuff, and I just had no vision. Um, so one way that I tried to, you know, sort of find, fill that void was uh, because I was playing in a band with guys that were a lot older than me. Uh, these guys were in their 20s, probably the mid-20s. When I went to college, I was 17 years old because um, I was a year young for my class. Well, I would be playing in the bars every night at Ohio State University campus with this, you know, hippie rock bands. And the guys in this scene, you want to check the video? or yes. um, The guys in this, uh, I was playing with these guys that were um, a lot older, in their mid-20s, on the uh, Ohio State campus. And um, because of that, I had, you know, sort of access. I would go into the clubs, even though I was 17. I'd go into the clubs. You know, I could probably get served beer if I wanted to, or, you know, somebody would bring me a beer. And um, and also this this particular scene, which was sort of an offshoot of, like, the Grateful Dead scene, you know, but part of the whole culture is weed and LSD and mushrooms and, you know, basically, and, and drinking, I guess. Um, and, and the music. But the drinking and, you know, the weed and the LSD 
is almost just as much a part of the culture as the music. And um, because I had this access, you know, at, at 18 years old, um, I could get a hold of weed, I could get a hold of LSD, mushrooms, what everybody in that scene did. And uh, there was this particular dealer who came by, and he, was all, he would always kind of service the band and all the groupies for the band, you know. He would give them, uh, you know, what do you need? What do you need? You want some weed? You want some mushrooms? You want some LSD? And so I could get a bag of, of weed. And then the, the other people that I knew from either that had graduated from high school with me or that were, like, in other classes at the college that weren't a, par weren't a part of this older scene, they would then come over to my apartment because they knew that I had the weed. Um, basically. And I felt important. I felt this sense of connection and belonging because everybody was coming to my apartment. Everybody was calling me all the time. Although, obviously, they, you know, they weren't calling me for <laughs> any other reason other than I had the weed, which right. is very, this whole vacuous thing, you know. Um, so one day the dealer said, uh, well, why don't you, um, buy a bigger bag and then you could sell this, you could sell parts of it to your friends and then you could, you know, just, you know, you could have your own bag for free, essentially. I was like, okay, it sounds, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, right, right. And uh, <laughs> so you can see where this is going, probably, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, so one day these these guys from my high school came down, and, and they, you know, one of them said, well, you know, my uncle wants to get some LSD. You know, can he come with us? And I was like, sure, whatever. You know, I wasn't thinking about anything. All I was doing was, you know, tuning out. And... Uh, so the guy came down, he asked, you know, me to get some uh, LSD. I called the dealer, hey, can I get, you know, he wanted, and he wanted a large amount. He wanted like eight sheets. A sheet is about this big, and it has something like this. It has a hundred little tiny perforated pieces of paper where they would drip the LSD onto. And uh, um, so I went and picked up the eight sheets, brought it back, gave it to the uncle. And then nine months later, I was indicted. You know, I didn't know, but he was a cop. So nine months later, my mom calls and says, Chris, the police came to our house looking for you. And um, it was because that uncle was actually a cop. And when the deal went down, they didn't just bust us right then. They wanted to, like, kind of follow up on all the things. They had been watching, you know, they were watching this scene, you know, and affiliated parties and that sort of thing. So that was it. Um, then I was, I was indicted and I waited around for a year. And then I went to, I went to, to jail for, uh, for four years. For, uh, to drug, for drug trafficking. And that became a continuation of my training as a musician. That's part of the reason I talk about it. Because those four years not only were... Uh, I went in at 20, got out when I was 24. Not only was it a rite of passage for me as a man, but also um, a huge influential time for me as a musician and eventually as an educator. And with all the projects that I do, I can point to lessons that I got from those four years and how they have really influenced how I structure, for example, my camp, my annual summer conference, which is the Creative Strings Workshop in Columbus, Ohio, and the way that we structure that camp. All of my, um, my teaching, my workshops, the curriculum where I teach people about blues, about improvisation, about music theory, about contemporary styles, different technical ways to play the violin. All that stuff, my how-to musical instructional stuff, a lot of that was deeply influenced by that time in the joint. Um, and other things, other things, various lessons learned during that time. So during that time, the music that I continued to study was 
um, I well, basically, African American music, um, lots of different types of African American music from R and B, um, like you know, seventies and eighties, whether it's Parliament Funk of Della, George Clinton, uh, you know, Prince, Jodeci, Keith Sweat, MC Hammer, Mary J. Blige, on and on. And actually, for the first two years that I was locked up, there was a vocational program that I was a part of with like eight other musicians and we would rehearse every day. We were called the Warden's Band. And we would go to other prisons like the like the Blues Brothers. We would go to other prisons and we would perform. We even performed at, you know out in the community at times. And um, that was that was an R and B band. And I had to learn certain parts and there was a leader of the band and I you know I it's had, a whole form. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's you know it was like we covered these songs, and uh, but on on Sundays I would I would play in gospel church services, and there were other musicians that I would learn about that, and I would go in and I would play, and and a lot of the time th there would be a uh, congregation that would come in from the free you know from outside the prison would come in on Sunday to have uh, worship. And um, there would be a group of us that would, and so the prisoners could go to that, that worship service, to that church service, and also we would play music for it. So I was collaborating with other music musicians just for the church services. And it was just playing a lot of African-American um, gospel music of all kinds. And I started playing some straight-ahead jazz as well, and some more what um, you could say like R&B jazz fusion. Well, well, black gospel music, from a theory standpoint, is very complex. Sure. You know, we're not talking one, four, five kind of stuff, and it's not just simple triad chords. There, there's a lot going on. That's true. A lot of the a lot of the um, gospel music, modern uh, gospel music, has been influenced by a lot of jazz fusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and but there's there's also a lot of uh, we could say complexity in in what on the surface doesn't seem complex. You know, playing the blues, a 12-bar blues, may not seem complex on the surface, but if you get deeper into um, trying to make it feel right, there's, there's, you know, and that's what I found myself, you know, really being amazed by um, getting to know African Americans, in you know, because of course, like most white guys growing up in a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. I um, I had a handful of African Americans in, in my school, and I thought that I was cool with them or whatever, you know. But um, but in the joint, it was probably sixty percent African American, fifty five percent something like that. Um, so it was a different world, and and it wasn't just from this racial context either. It was also obviously about class differences and generational differences, because I was thrust into this world of. People, a lot of people who were a lot older than me came from different class background um, and also the different racial mix and not to mention they were all felons um, but um, you know but a lot of people in there um, a lot of those felons were good people you know and there was there were some people that were really really lost in there and, and people who had had stuff that had happened in their lives that made me realize how lucky I was like you know for for whatever happened to me four years in, in jail um the people that i met in there by and large had had it much 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 rougher than me so but anyway i don't mean to go on and on about it but during that period i i i sort of re 
invented my vision. And my vision then became that I wanted to be able to play all these other styles of music on the violin. And I felt like the violin had sort of, and all bowed strings instruments, as far as I knew, had been really underrepresented in terms of any African-American influenced music. You don't necessarily see a lot of violin. You hadn't at that time, 1992, you hadn't seen a lot of violin in rock music, in jazz music, in R&B, um, gospel music, blues. And I saw it as, I guess, an opportunity for me to find a direction and to, you know, okay, so maybe I'm not going to be a, a concerto playing violinist for a living, but I could do this. Plus, because I felt this really deep connection with the musicians I was making music with. Um, and from playing these gospel church services, I felt a really deep sense of purpose and engagement from the audiences. Um, I felt a deep sense of challenge, being challenged to really, to be able to play the blues or to be able to swing or to be able to make the changes or to be able to learn these new styles, um, to have a different sense of rhythm and all these kinds of things. I felt really challenged by that in a profound way, <laughs> you know, and, and I also felt like that somehow that these lessons that I was learning as a musician and as a person that I was going to be able to take out from this experience and somehow share them with other people who had had a similar experience to me as a classically trained, you know, middle-class educated white dude. Like I felt like there was stuff that, that, and I didn't know exactly how I was going to crystallize it or articulate it, but I knew that there was something that it needed to be shared because I was just getting punched in the face with so much truth bombs right. every day about like, wow, you know, I thought music was this, but it's not. It's so much more. I thought life was this, but it's not. I thought people were this, but they're not. There's so much more. There's so much more that we can appreciate. Someone from my background can appreciate and have a deeper empathy for what other people experience, not only as a human being, but as a musician. After that, I got out and I started my career at the age of 24. Um, I just started and everything else has kind of been history. And that's from then I started developing my educational programs, my performing career. And, uh, and now to sort of full circle now where one of the big things that I'm doing is now seeing myself as a, an older person trying to reach younger people, um, whether it's, you know, as I was talking about earlier, trying to inspire um, young people to find that vision and to not tune out and act out. Right. You know, to have a really positive vision for who they are and what they can contribute in the world and have that be something that lifts them up, gets them excited, like you and me are excited. Right. Yeah. Um, but also, I'm trying to help people in terms of, you know, finding their creative voice and being fulfilled as musicians through being creatively self-expressed. And also, I think that that creativity manifests itself for us as musicians. We're gonna, many of us will be better off if we can harness that through entrepreneurial, uh, proactive initiative taking. Like, you have to go out and take your music to people. Right. You can't wait for it to come. So I'm doing a lot of music business coaching as well. So anyway, I just talked for a long time. No, no, it's great.
Um, now you got. <laughs> I mean, you guys are listening to the Rockstar Violinist podcast. Christian has his own podcast that I'm sure a lot of you are aware of. It's called Creative Strings, and it, and it talks about. I mean, you guys do a lot of interviews too, and um, but it's a lot of the things you're talking about. You're getting way deeper. Yeah. And, and not only like, I'm playing music that I love. But unless I want to go work at Walmart for eight hours and then go play the music I love, maybe there's a way that I can find a way to make money with this. Yes. And obviously there's a lot of ways to make money with this, and you get into a lot of that in your podcast. So I will definitely refer you guys to Christian's podcast. Check out Creative Strings. It's uh, it's really it's a great listen. I have to drive a lot to my gigs, and it's one of my listens a lot when I'm driving. I, I just got to check in and get my education while I'm getting from one place to another, too. Uh. Well, yeah, you're right, and we and basically we talk we talk on all those pillars that I tried to articulate just a minute ago. But I mean, we talk about pedagogy, you know. We talk about um, you know musical, um, we teaching music how to how to write songs, how to understand music theory, how to be creative with your music. We talk about music business. We talk about culture, and those are sort of the those the the main themes that were that I delved into during those four years, and that's why it's still this really big part of me even 25 years later, although obviously I don't every day want to be dwelling on the past or anything like right. that. Well, it's like, you know, when you go to college, it's it's this, it's, this port, it's this part of time where you're sort of taken out of your comfort zone and you're taught a bunch of things you didn't know, and you go on with the rest of your life and you build on top of the things you've learned. You don't think back about college every minute of every day, but it does form you right. for the rest of your life. Yeah, and it was just sort of, it was your grad school, I guess. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, but I appreciate you mentioning uh, the, uh, the podcast, it's the creative strings podcast. And we, and we do cover a lot of that. And actually I'm excited that you came all the way down here today to come to my place and in Asheville. So I can learn from you because you're, you know, I really respect what you're doing with all the content at electric violin shop. Um, and you know, we have a lot in common, so I think it's, it's really great to get to, to meet you today and, and, uh, and talk about all this and anything else you, you yeah, want to likewise. Talk about. So you're 24 years old, you, you're sort of starting over. I gotta, I gotta do this thing again. Where did your playing career go from there? Yeah. So, as, well, as soon as I got out, I hope, and I apologize to any of the listeners if I got too uh, long winded there, but, uh, but it's eventually, and, and there's a lot more that I could go into that I'm not <laughs> going to today, you know, those four years. But when I got, I was 24 and, uh, I had this vision to be a jazz violin player, whatever that meant, you know, and, um, I went to my parents and, and when I first got out, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to go work construction because <laughs> I had no idea how I was going to get a job or whatever. And my parents said, no, why don't you stay with us for a while and we'll help you. We'll give you some advice so you can go out and get work. You want to be a jazz violin player? We'll help you figure out how to do that. There was nobody doing it at the time. I mean, there was a handful of people. John Blake uh, was one, you know, and John was one of the people that was really nice to me and encouraging to me. But um, anyway, my dad said, uh, so I didn't have a model for how am I going to create a career. I mean, it, it was Jolly Pony, right. but I mean, what, you know, I, I, he's like a superstar. So I don't know. It's like, so my dad said, you know, go out and reach out to, um, some managers of some local restaurants and offer to do a free audition. So I did it. I reached out to like 15 people. Eight of them gave me the chance to come do a free audition from those eight free auditions. I ended up with four venues giving me a gig and one of them gave me two. So I had five nights a week now that I was doing, uh, playing duo at either a restaurant or a hotel or a coffee shop. 
And uh, I would just call um, piano players or guitar players to back me up and play duo. And I would read out all these fake books. I would read standards. I would read folk music, whatever thought people might go for. We even had something called a classical fake book, which was like, you know, just had like popular classical songs that gives you the chords, like kind of a reduction, you know, a symbol. Right, sure. So you could play the, the Blue Danube with a, with a uh, uh, you know, fake sheet with the chord progression. You could kind of find, try to improvise on it. So I just did a lot of learning for like six years in Columbus, Ohio, playing on these local gigs. And I was hustling like crazy, Matt, because I had, you know, I was still on um, probation and I was still technically a ward of the state I was serving a six to 25 year sentence. So they could have kept me until 2017 <laughs> this year. Yeah. And um, since 1992, so I was, I was, I was out, but I was still like, you know, I was on probation. So for two years, I had to be just making sure I didn't get any trouble. And I was just so wound up from those four years. Like it had just traumatized me. I realized now I didn't have the words to, I didn't really know what it was then, but I realized now that it was PTSD basically. Sure. And um, I just, you know, either I was going to tune out, act out, or hustle my boat off to try to create as much distance between that experience as I could. So that's what I did. I converted it all into drive and I just fought with everything I had. I mean, I just knocking on doors, just calling, just asking for the opportunity to play my violin or to do anything. And um, so for those first five, six years in Columbus, um, I really developed a good living. Well, funny story. The Columbus Symphony called me about a month after I had gotten out. And by this time, I had already started getting some of these um, duo gigs at local restaurants and stuff. And, and uh, people in the symphony, they knew me because I'm from Columbus and people knew about me from growing up and stuff. And they said, hey, you can come and sub with the Columbus Symphony, which, you know, half the orchestra's subs, like basically full-time subs. It was good money. It was probably 600 bucks a week, 700 bucks a week. And um, then after a couple months, I had to decide, though. I was like, well, I can't do both. So I ended up quitting the symphony so that I can instead be doing my six regular gigs. And the reason was because, well, I figure it's my name on the, on the, on the marquee, not a big marquee, but still, you know, the people, the customers that came to the restaurant, they would ask me to play weddings and other gigs. It would right. lead to other stuff. You know, so it was, it was my name. I could be learning on the gig and challenging myself, learning about tunes, learning from other musicians, you know, piano players who I could ask questions. Like, how do you? How do you play this song? Right. You know, how, how long am I supposed to take a solo? And how do I transfer the solo to you? What's the intro? And how do we get out of the song? And like, I didn't really know how to play jazz. Like, I mean, I had been trying to. You know, what I'd learned in jail was really learning from street musicians, and, and I learned a lot. But I didn't. I wasn't learning from this kind of uh, quote unquote professional jazz musician. So I learned a ton. And that was a big time when I really refined a lot of my ability as a, as a jazz violinist. And at that point. I started, I had the idea, because I just kept hustling, but that's when I met Yamaha and developed a good relationship with them, um, started endorsing their products, because they were based in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the time, and I was just thinking, like, how can I get out of Columbus and play anywhere? So one for whatever reason, I got in touch with, I heard about Yamaha made an electric violin, I called them, I said, I'm going to come, I'm going to schedule a gig in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'm going to meet you. So I met them, I loved them, it was really cool, I played, took my band to Grand Rapids, which was about a six-hour drive. felt like a big deal to me to get out of Columbus, you know, right. and I would go to other places like Toledo or Cincinnati. I'd go, I'd go anywhere just to sit in, you know, even on jam sessions. I was just like, how can I go out? I'm just going to play for one person at a time, you know, one new uh, fan at a time, one city at a time, one gig at a time, just, and it's just all going to be hustle. And 
Eventually I thought, what if I could bring people from New York to come to Columbus? Now that I'm a big fish in Columbus and I know all these, you know, venues, I could promote the show, but I could bring a big artist in. So I would bring artists from New York, people that I thought might even be interested in playing with a violin player, which is a very small group of people, but, you know, Billy Hart, a drummer, Dee Dee Jackson, a piano player, these were people that I had an inkling to think they might be interested in, in working with violin. So I brought them in and I promoted these shows. Uh, and I would sell tickets to the shows and I would pay the artists whatever they wanted and it paid off Dee Dee Jackson um, who at the time was uh, the most uh, um, he won a big poll you know big critics award in Downbeat and uh, he was really hot you know at the time and it paid off he hired me and my Columbus band that I put together for him to go to Japan on tour and then he hired us to come to New York City and do a week at Birdland Nice. And then after that, he hired me to do a recording session for RCA Victor with some of the biggest stars in jazz. Jack DeJanet on drums, James Carter on uh, saxophone, Mino Sinelli on percussion, and, uh, oh, I'm spacing on one of them, James Carter, Richard Bona on bass. So, man, talk about, I mean, are you kidding me? Right. Playing with Jack DeJanet for three days in the studio? Oh, my gosh. So... I went and I did that. When I was in New York with those trips to visit Didi, I tried to reach out to other people in New York. And, it, and one of the people I reached out to was Les Paul. And it's because somebody I knew in New York said, you should try to go out on Monday night to his jam session and see if you can sit in. So I went to his jam session and I tapped him on the shoulder. And I said, Mr. Paul, could I sit in? And he said, I don't know, can you play? And I got out my silent, my Yamaha silent electric violin and I just played a little bit in his ear. And he was, and he just started laughing. He says, that sounds great. Yeah, come on up and play. And he really <laughs> loved, you know, the thing was, Les got a kick out of the, the Yamaha electric violin. Because he had never, I don't think he had seen anything like that before. And of course, Les Paul invented the electric guitar. Sure. So I think he saw it, rightfully so, as an extension of his legacy. So then Les Paul said, after that day, night, he said, you can come and play every Monday with me. Standing invitation. Boom. I played with him for 12 years after that until he passed away. Wow. I got really close with Les Paul. But I also made friends with Akua Dixon, who ran Quartet Indigo. I ended up sort of taking over the first violin chair after Regina Carter had gotten her mm. big, yeah. you know, kind of a big break. You know, I started sitting in that chair. And then I was working with Dee Dee. And so that was enough for me to decide, okay, I'm going to New York. So after two years of going, just driving up to New York for some little rehearsals or little gigs here and there, um, I decided screwed i'm moving to new york and uh my wife colleen at the time she was my girlfriend i said you know i want to do this thing and she said okay let's do it and and we we went to new york and i was there for eight or nine years and while i was in new york i just i tried to meet as many people and play with as many great players as i could you know so christian mentioned that he got to play with les paul for many years it turns out that there's some video so here's a clip of christian being called up by les paul to play Les has a little bit of fun with him, and then they jam out. <laughs> what would you usually play when you come up? How about, uh, how about Days of Wonder Roses? Do you do that song? Sure, sure. What key are you doing here? F. F. You know what that is? <laughs> no, <laughs> down to. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> Lou, we're only kidding. It's in F. It's in F. Go ahead.
Yeah. So the tour in Japan was cool. Yeah. I've done Japan. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, maybe some other tours or things that you've done? What, sure. What else? Well, while I was in New York, I ended up, you know, as an improvising violin player, I knew that although I have a lot of classical chops and, you know, I'm a legit player and stuff, but I made a decision earlier on that I was not going to look for classical gigs because I thought I re if I'm if it's going to if I'm going to have a choice what to work for I'm going to work for anything that distinguishes me via via being an improviser and so I, I learned quickly that there was a lot of different ways to do that in New York like you know there was all these different like sub niches and these little things so for example um, I played in the uh, um, what's his name. Uh, it's this, uh, oh man, it's like a traditional band, it's like a 1920s band, I can't remember the guy, but he's on that HBO series, uh, oh, Giordano, anyway, the Nighthawks, I think is the name of the band, so I did this, it was a really like, I guess some people might call it Dixieland jazz, okay. you know, traditional jazz, I did that, I also would play with like the most crossover kind of classical like new classical composers that were asking for improvisation in like a like a composer's orchestras I would go and I would just do those for free sometime at the musicians union. I played with um, free you know free jazz players and people that are sort of modern jazz where modern jazz meets really free outside jazz people like Rez Abbasi, A-B-B-A-S-I, who brings a lot of his Pakistani um, heritage to really great modern jazz. Um, people like Joel Harrison, a wonderful singer-songwriter who's done a lot of recordings. I recorded on many albums with him, did a lot of projects with him. A lot of times they would involve string quartet, but I also got to work with some of the heaviest uh, improvisers. I played with Steve Teray, the trombonist with the Saturday Night Live band. Um, he took me out with his band. It was more of a straight-ahead project. I played with Daphnis Prieto, who won the Genius Grant, the MacArthur Award. He's a drummer from uh, Cuba who writes a lot of modern jazz mixed with his Cuban, you know, um, music. So, and I did a lot of other gigs while I was in New York. And I went to Europe with, eventually with Bill Evans, the saxophonist. I ended up touring in Europe with him for about six years with this project called Soulgrass, where he knew that he wanted to, mixed kind of jazz fusion like 80s Miles Davis kind of jazz fusion funk fusion with the sound of bluegrass kind of you know so there was a banjo player Ryan Kavanaugh who I think you probably know mm -hmm. from Carborough yep. or was in Carborough for a while and uh, and me on fiddle and there was uh, it was just bass fiddle banjo saxophone and drums and so that was an amazing experience because I had to do like you were talking about covering keyboard parts and kind of you know right. it's really creative. And plus, Bill would just push me every night to like just he just wanted me to go for it, you know. And you know, Bill played with Miles Davis, so it's really a part of that kind of that uh, tree, if you will. I mean, he learned from Miles the Miles approach, and and from what I understand, that approach is really about you know you find players with great voices and you just push them to just be as creative as they can with you know with these structures so i got a ton out of working with bill for you know five or six years and i was teaching at berkeley at the time i was doing some of my own projects um but then my daughter had been in columbus and when i when me and my um now wife had moved to uh new york i think uh, my daughter cammy at the time my daughter was um probably five or six and so Every year, I knew in the back of my mind, at some point, I'm going to go back to Columbus. And I was always commuting. I was always going back to Columbus to see um, Cammy, or Cammy would come to, um, Camille would come to New York to visit me once Cammy got a little older. And um, 
I kept doing bigger things every year, and it was exciting. I was really chasing my dream and stuff and growing artistically and growing professionally. But finally I just cut it off, and I said, you know, Cammy's going to go to high school soon. And I was going to Boston for Berkeley. I was going to Europe with Bill. I was in New York, you know, for stuff, and then I would go to Ohio. It was just way too much. There was like five years I was never one place for two weeks. Wow. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. I can't have, you know, a girlfriend in New York you know, my kid in Columbus, and this is too much. And I said, I'm just dropping everything. And I asked, uh, and me and uh, Colleen got married, uh, me and Colleen got married, and I said, you know, it's, it's time. I need to go back and be closer to Cammy. And uh, we had already talked about that before, and Colleen said, yeah, of course. You know, it's okay, if it's time, let's go back. And, um, but Colleen was working as a, as a lawyer at that time. Uh, on Madison Avenue, and uh, so it was a big sacrifice that Colleen made, uh, so that uh, so that she could be more of a, a stepmom role, and and so that I could you know be closer with Camille, and so we spent those years in Columbus, and that's when I really went all down on uh, or doubled down on my sort of you know creating my name as a leader, if you will. So this was about eight or nine years ago, and that was when because basically I quit everything. I quit Berkeley, right. I quit Bill Evans, I quit New York, and everything, because I was like, I'm going to be in Ohio, in Columbus, with my wife and my kid, and uh, and otherwise I'll go out on the road and I'll do Christian House projects. And so I just, it was that at that point that I started just really building, you know, I kind of went through the sideman, they call it the sideman route, you know, to get yeah, that sure. credibility, get those gigs from playing with the big artists and also teaching at Berkeley, kind of got my credibility as an educator. But then I was like, I'm developing my own educational programs, I'm developing or building on them, because I'd already started my camp several years ago, and I, you know, I started my online academy, but I was like, I'm just going to go all in on this. I started going to a lot more schools, you know, and just, uh, and touring on my own. So, and so for the last eight, nine years, it's been it's been that. It's been building my online um, <clears throat> teaching, Creative mm-hmm. Strings Academy, my summer conference, which is in its fifteenth uh, year, the Creative Strings Workshop. I now do music business consulting. I do char- character education outreach, where I taught you know not only go perform for middle school and high school, but also talk to kids about choices, mm-hmm. about tuning out, acting out, and about finding not doing those things, but finding their vision. You know, so hopefully it's a way to prevent them from getting involved in destructive behaviors. And um, I think I mentioned music business coaching to help musicians not only get more creatively expressed from a standpoint of playing, but to go out and share their music with the world, you know, and, and right. to be, you know. So that's, does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> there I go yeah. talking again. <laughs> no, that's, that's what we're here for. So, um, so talk to me a little bit about improv, because I think that's one of the things, one of the big things that separates classical musicians from more contemporary musicians and and like what's your basic approach to improv and how do you, how do you teach that from a from a starting position yeah thanks for asking and you know i've got tons of a lot of this content you know on my youtube channel christian house tube or on my on my blog i've got commentary you know i've got a lot of free courses out there and stuff if you you can get a whole email course for me and you know but i'm going to talk to you a little bit about there's probably, there's probably about six distinct modules that I go at uh, when I'm talking about this. And, you know, a lot of people will talk about improv from one standpoint or another standpoint. And first of all, I'll say that I look at it in two different ways. Number one, there's jazz studies. And I've done a lot of teaching for people who really want to go in through the jazz studies model. But for a lot of classical string players, they're not necessarily interested in jazz studies. And so I'll look at it from a more 
you know, a standpoint of a classical musician, someone who was trained classically, like me, and knowing what I dealt with at that time, and I'll and I'll sort of suggest a bunch of mod modules. Some of those modules will intersect a little bit or overlap with jazz studies, but not all of them will. So, one of the modules would just be about pure creativity, and I look at this kind of like, you know, how do you practice creativity? Right. How do you, you know, foster creativity outside of the knowledge that you need to have, outside of any stylistic knowledge, any harmonic knowledge, any technical knowledge. So imagine you're four years old. You just picked up a violin, you don't know anything about styles of music, you don't know anything about harmony or theory. How could you, how could you actually push that four-year-old to be creative? And I, and I liken it to scribbling with a crayon. You know, like a three-year-old, they you know, scribble with a crayon and they don't really think about it and they just do it. Someone told me if you do a hundred, you know, compositions, throw them all away, you'll be a composer. So I try to get people to do their first hundred improvisations. A problem with people improvising, I can say, Matt, just play something for me. And if you're just classically trained, if you haven't done a lot of improvisation, which I know you have, you might be like, well, I don't know where to start. Or, I, you know, I just don't know what to do. So counterintuitively, what I want to do is I want to give you structures. I'm going to say, okay, play eighth notes at this tempo and only use the notes A, D, and E, for example. Now, as soon as I give you those limits, it's going to make it easier for you to then be creative within those limits. And so I create a whole system of different kinds of limits and rules and games, really, to get people to do improvisation that's not bound by harmony or style or technical ability. Okay. So that's one module. Now, a second module that I would do is about... Um, basically modes and scales. And I treat it in a slightly different way. I try to make it a lot easier for people. Um, so I'll have people work on simple uh, scale sequences, which is something that a, that a classical musician can develop relatively easily. I'll explain to them you know, light to, to dark modes and how you can ex explore um, improvising using modes, um, some different applications of that and how you can build off of that and create vamps and drones and things like that. So that's kind of modal and scalar approach. That would be module two. Module three, this is not necessarily any order, by the way. Module three, I would really focus on blues. Because I think that blues is such an important part of the American um, panacea of contemporary music. Whether, whether it's um, Appalachian bluegrass, whether it's rock, whether it's jazz, R&B, I think we can, if we talk about blues, it's really important. For someone, you know, like myself, um, it was really, really important to, as, as I talked about earlier, sort of investigating African-American culture and going deeper than not just, you know, what's a blues scale, what's, uh, what's a 12-bar blues chord structure, you know, what's a, a blues lick. A lot of people talk about that stuff. I like to encourage people to listen even deeper and try to understand some of the cultural and literary and stuff like that around blues. But but even from a practical standpoint, I'll give people a bunch of different ways that they can understand blues and they can practice playing blues, because I think it's an important approach. A lot of the African-American musicians that I learned from, I had mentorships from, they talked about growing up in the black church and how they approached music. And that is an important, it's important to understand that process that they use to play that music. You know, because I'm coming from a different process. I'm reading music. I'm coming from conservatory kind of vibe. So I wanted to try to get into that headspace and appreciate that. A great example of this, uh, Bobby Floyd, who's one of my, you know, favorite musicians and a huge mentor to me, 
he was one of those pianists that I would do duos with, and I'd call him to play with me when I was, you know, I had those duo gigs. And he would play, and in the breaks, I'd ask him questions. And I, I would ask a question like, Bobby, I noticed on the second chorus of all the things you are that you, you approach that A minor 7 flat 5 chord with, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the the Lydian dominance, you know, mode or something like that, and and how you kind of anticipated, you know, what, can you tell me more about that? And he, and he would sit and think for a second about it and say, well, Chris, I wasn't really looking at it that way. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, like, that makes sense, but that's not really what was going on in my mind. He said, you know, I was just, I, I listen, and I try to feel the spirit. And when I, you know, when I feel moved by the spirit, I play what comes to me. And that might sound, you know, people may not know how to take that, but to me, that I was like, man, that's so deep. It's so different mm -hmm. than what I knew. You know, so there's a lot of ways that I'll go at blues. Um, then I'll talk about the internalization of harmony in a lot of different ways. I have this, uh, this, um, this tool that I use. It's just a simple document. It's called a uh, chord stack diagram. And it's a visual aid that you can use to easily voice lead any triadic based music. So I use it with Paco Bell's Canon, I use it with Suzuki uh, Book One songs, I use it with pop songs, and I'll show people how you can essentially do arranging, composition, improvisation, and all kinds of styles if you have this visual aid that makes it, it's like training wheels for riding a bike, but it's for harmony. Because as you know, to be able to play over all the chords, you need to know the chords, but that's like learning a language. It takes time. For sure. So I have that, and then I have more advanced strategies for harmonic internalization as well. And I do things that have to do with rhythm. I have, you know, I teach people to use loop pedals. Uh, there's a lot of applications of this stuff that I do. Tons and tons of exercises. I've got eBooks. I've got so many exercises. I really made it a mission to create a, a full, huge curriculum. And as, and as far as I know, sorry, I'll just turn that off. <laughs> as far as I know, you know, I do have, I believe, the most extensive curriculum uh, for uh, classically trained bowed string players that want to learn about improvisation. It's not just a jazz curriculum. It's, it's you know, it's about. You know, all this kind of stuff. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I mean, just to let your listeners know, like, it's really easy to get a whole lot of this free stuff that I have. You know, my podcast, the Creative Strings podcast. You can also join on Facebook. I've got Creative String Players. It's a free group you can join. It's closed. You just you ask to join, and I'll let you in. Um, but you can also reach out to me, Chris at ChristianHouse.com. You can find a lot of my free. YouTube stuff at Christian House Tube or just at my website on my blog. There's just so much free information. It is so different now because you and I are about the same age. We came up in the 70s and 80s and it's none of this stuff was available. Right. Like if you wanted to learn um, jazz, you had to go buy a jazz record. Right. And you had to sit down and you had to listen to it and then stop it. Okay, what did he play there? And you got you to sit there and figure it out or you got to find a teacher. And if you live in Temperance, Michigan... Where I lived for a while, there, you know, there's no jazz teachers in Temperance, Michigan. Right. Or if there is a good one, he's probably busy. So, you know, you know a kid in, in Lincoln, Nebraska can now study from a guy that played with Les Paul. And, right. you know, and you can you could potentially be learning things firsthand from your from your mentors where back in the day, you know, if I you know, if I was blown away by Richie Sambora. No way for me to get in touch with Richie Sambora to learn any of this stuff, you know? That's right. 
Yeah, I'm in touch with people all over the world on a regular basis. I, I, I answer all the email requests that come in, um, and a lot of people take private lessons with me on Skype. In fact, if you go to my Creative Strings Academy uh, right now, and uh, I've got a, um, when you're putting out this podcast, I, I will have a, a, a promotion where you can sign up for a trial of my online course for 30 days for free, and you can take a free lesson with me, a free Skype lesson, anybody. It's free. There's no catch. So, yeah, you're you're right. You're absolutely right. And and I encourage people to take advantage of it because, Matt, I mean, um, you know, we're two what's birds of a feather. We're, we're yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're really we have so much in common. It's it's great. You know, but a lot of classical musicians are just petrified. They feel so you know vulnerable and scared about getting this stuff. And you don't have to, you know, but it really will help you to have just a little bit of guidance. Right. So a little bit of guidance, and there's different ways to do that. You can go on my YouTube channel, you can, or you can take a, a private lesson. You know, we'll sit down for a half an hour for free, and I'll talk, I'll talk you through it so you feel a little bit less uh, intimidated. But it's important not only for if you want to be a jazz player or if you want to play in a rock band. It's important for your own development as a musician to keep challenging yourself. I don't care where you are in your career. Yeah. It's also important for you to be more marketable and be able to have more variety in the type of gigs that you do in your life. Sure. I know you have tons of variety in the, in the gigs and the things that you do in life, and that's part of what makes you such a, you know, a, uh, um, uh, just a, an exciting human being. You know, <laughs> you are just telling me today about how, you, you know, you, 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 you obviously you lift weights or do something fit. I mean, you do, maybe, I don't know, maybe CrossFit or something. You obviously have you know exercise. You hang out with your son doing uh, BMX. You know you do all this content stuff that is so awesome. You play gigs. You do all this stuff. We all need that, man. I believe. I believe you know variety is the spice of life. For sure. And um, so so no matter if you've been you know a classical musician for 30, 40 years, um, there is something that you can be doing to just branching out a little bit. Don't try to put it in a you know don't. Don't get the wrong idea that it's going to be so hard for you to branch out a little bit. There's so many different ways that you could do it. You could right. do a little bit of folk music or play with a rock band or, you know, do a little jazz or maybe get involved in a worship band if you are if you go to church a lot. Uh, you could bring it into the studio if you're teaching Suzuki, if you're mm -hmm. teaching traditional music. There's just so many ways that you could expand your musicianship, and it doesn't mean that you're turning your back on classical music. At all. It's going to make you a better classical music. And the thing, I turned my back on classical music for several years. I actually didn't play violin for several years. I was primarily a trumpet player. But then, um, just recently, I started studying with Alex Depew, And he pushed me. He said, you want to be a better improviser. I want you to pick your classical music back up. And it didn't make any sense to me. And I picked it back up, and I went, oh. You know, I hadn't uh, done this in years. Uh, uh, and, and I understand that classical music on a much different level now than I did before I was an improviser because oh, I was yeah. classical first oh, yeah. then became an improviser only right. and now I'm now I'm doing both and it's you understand it on such a different level mm -hmm. uh, my wife's an MD and um, oh, cool. and she, she sort of makes this joke to the students that she's teaching they're like well I don't need to know this you know this, this she's an OBGYN I don't need to know about this delivering babies thing I'm going to be a neurosurgeon she said here's nobody wants to be the dummy with MD behind their name. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to learn a little bit about all the other fields because she, she actually tells the story of this neurosurgeon friend who their neighbor calls them in a panic. Hey, my kid just ate like seven Flintstones vitamins. Is that okay? And he goes, 
I, I don't know. I'm a neurosurgeon. I don't know anything about Flintstones vitamins. Wow. So, and, and this neurosurgeon was telling her, this is why you have to pay attention to all your other classes. You don't want to be the dummy with MD behind you. So it's like that. You don't want to be Maxime Vengeroff. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says, hey, man, can you, uh, can you play Happy Birthday for us? And you go, well, if you've got the sheet music. Yeah, right. right? So, I mean, you don't want to be the dummy who's a concert violinist who can't pick out a kid's song. Yeah. Right, and, and just for yourself, either even you know, I mean, just for yourself to be able to enjoy music and express it in as many settings and ways as possible. You know, I used to be frustrated as a classical violinist that I couldn't play music solo, unaccompanied for people, because I would always have to apologize and say, "Well, I don't have an accompanist," you know, so you're not really going to hear the tune, and you know, yeah. And that's been one of the most exciting things for me to be able to. Uh, uh, accompany myself, you know, and even just to like sing my kids to sleep at night, right? You know, to be able to strum along with the violin for things just that might seem so small like that, but it's like powerful. It makes you feel more like I can really contribute through my music in so many other ways. Again, if you're a teacher, if you're teaching kids, lead by example. Show that you have the courage to be a little bit uncomfortable, to not always know the right answer, but to 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 be exploring and curious and, and, and lead your, your students to want to be doing that too. Because there's nothing wrong with a kid wanting to play a pop song or wanting to improvise or compose or whatever. There's so many different ways that we can contribute and make an impact through music. I actually talked with Mark Wood a lot about this in, in our interview. And, it, and the traditional string community is so uptight. And it's, <laughs> well, you, you know, you, you can't, you can't play a Rihanna song. What are you talking about? You know, well, that's not music. And and I think that, you know, you're going to blow kids off and you're going to make them, like you said, tune out and act out if if you're telling them the things that they're passionate about are not legitimate. Absolutely. And, well, and that speaks to this idea of sustainable musicianship because, you know, not everybody's going to be a concert violinist 24-7. Um, some people are going to do other things, but if you're a teacher, you want those kids to continue to sustain their relationship with music. Somehow that they continue to have a relationship with music and they're contributing music in their world. And if you have a day job, you still want to be doing music in some way. Like I said, maybe it's a worship band. Maybe it's a campfire when you go on trips with your family. Maybe it's just playing music for your kids. You know, um, And so to have that sustainable relationship with music it's super important. And, you know, this idea that there's only, there's legitimate music and illegitimate music, I think that, that music is just something that helps people connect with their humanity. It's, it's something that helps people, you know, I, want to, I just want to go back to this story because, you know, <clears throat> one of the profound, you know, deep lessons I learned in, uh, in the joint was that music is about human community. Um, in the joint, there is music. I mean, in the you know, in prison, everybody's alienated, dehumanized, scared, you know, on the edge of violence, you know, traumatized, right? But then you walk out in the yard and somebody's singing a song, and you just melt. You feel this return of of this trust, of human connection. Your emotions open up. I remember sitting in solitary confinement and hearing a guy in the cell down the down the block singing a cappella, and just tears just bursting. You know, like I had so much that that just unlocked it for me, hearing this person sing in solitary confinement. 
I would go out on the prison yard and I'd be practicing Mendelssohn Violin Concerto or whatever, Carl Flesch Scales, and I would see these killers, rapists, robbers. I mean, a lot of people with a lot of deep scars and deep issues running around in this prison yard and they would, they would tip their head to me. You know, they would thank me for playing music out of the yard. I was, first I was like, ah, well, how am I going to play out here, play music out here? It ended up being the thing that saved me in the joint because people appreciated that I played music. They gave me a pass. They didn't mess with me quite as much. And they, you know, they trusted me. They liked me. There was a connection that I developed with people from, from playing music. So that can't be underestimated. And yeah, people that are just keeping it in a conservatory, in a practice room, you know, and you got to have a librarian, and you got to have sheet music. You're just ripping yourself off, and you're ripping the world off. Music is meant to be shared. It's meant to um, infuse humanity into families, into, per into relationships, connections, community of all kinds. So there's not bad music and good music. There's just, can we share music and connect with people in any way? That's what I think. Well, I mean, if it doesn't touch your soul, is it art? It's just math. Apart from that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, the fact is that not everybody's going to connect with what you do musically, but someone will. Right. I mean, show me a four-year-old that just picked up a violin, and I will show you a beautiful <laughs> sound. I mean, you can hear that beauty, and you ask any full-time teachers, they know. You can hear the beauty in that, in that seven-year-old cello player that's been playing for one year. You can hear it in there. You know, and you can change lives with, with by sharing that music, you know. So I think it's really important. Part of the way that we we uh, we stress that, you know, part of the way that I continue to push that and try to help people through these this particular lesson is at my Creative Strings Workshop, the annual summer conference. That's why we do like thirty public concerts during the week. Holy cow. We play we play at farmers markets, we play in fields, we play uh, <laughs> we, we will just like we'll do like uh, flash mob performances we'll play in clubs coffee shops like in front of the post office libraries assisted living facilities so when people come to my summer conference and this was why actually this was the original vision because I I thought you know part of branching out as a musician is being able to share your music uninhibited in the world in all these different ways. So we do that. When you come to the Creative Strings Workshop, uh, it's the first week of July in Columbus. You go to my website, christianhouse.com, look for education, look for Creative Strings Workshop. You'll be put into several different ensembles, and you'll go out and you'll play these gigs all week long. That's awesome. Uh, and another way that I try to really help musicians to, to, to drive this point home of sharing your music is through my music business coaching programs. It's really by pushing this idea of entrepreneurialism. Uh, in the sense of, if you have music, you need to share it. <laughs> you need to push it. You need to promote it. So many musicians suffer from this kind of, you know, under-promoting themselves. Because, you know, on some level, they either don't know how, or they don't know that they should be promoting themselves. Uh, or they feel that they're going to be, you know, inappropriate. But you've got to promote music. You've got to promote, and if that means you're the one, and you go out and promote your own music, you need to do that. So... So I started doing a music business mastermind course over a year ago, and I've done uh, four 30-day courses uh, with professional musicians, helping them, you know, getting more gigs, more clients, and increasing the impact. And so if you're interested in that, too, feel free to reach out to me, chris at christianhouse.com, and we'll 
jump on the phone and help you out with some of that too. Increasing your impact and your income. Because yeah. who doesn't want more income? Right? Exactly. Because if you got more income, you can buy more gear. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you can change the world. Yeah. You know, you can buy, starting with your own family too. You right. Or you can buy more gear. I'm sorry, I just missed that. Yeah. You got to go get a gig so you can get that next step up. Yeah. Yamaha, step up with Yamaha, right. electric violin shop. Yeah, that really yeah, brings my... us back where we need to be right now. Yeah, I, it's funny because I like I don't believe in selling gear. I only believe in buying. So yeah, yeah. Like, in my music room is like packed. My wife doesn't get it all. But anyway, cool. So you know, we talked about sort of classical music and jazz music. You've actually written a piece based on a lot of jazz ideas and theories, but have published the sheet music. Yeah. So that for free. So that people who maybe do not learn by ear. Yep. Can can access some of these things, and, and the more you play it, and I've I've learned it. Um, the more you play it, it sort of gets some of these ideas under your fingers, and once they're under your fingers, they sort of work their way into your brain and your heart, and, and then you know, you find yourself pulling these things out. Um, but this tune, this tune is called Postlude. Yep. And uh, just sort of talk us through maybe what the process was, what your motivation was for writing. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, I've studied a lot of the Bach unaccompanied repertoire, and I wanted to. Uh, give more unaccompanied repertoire for violinists. I also wanted violinists to be able to have a piece of music that they could improvise over. And uh, and I also just wanted to be able to have my own work continue to evolve and have different forms. So um, so yeah, it's called Postlude. It's on my my record from a couple years ago called American Spirit. And But I'm giving away the sheet music and you can also hear the recording on my website, uh, christianhouse.com. And... Uh, <laughs> I'll play some little sequence, little parts from it, but it has this, it starts off with this, uh, um, this motif. goes into all these different things uh, and some of it sounds like a little bit like Bach and or you can it not doesn't really sound like it but you know it has certain similar technical things you know like the next uh, you know these different kind of little segments and some of them um, you could improvise like so I think later on in the middle of the piece especially there's this section where I write the chords out and so it'll be like E minor 9 you know and so over E minor 9 I play something like You know, and but but that kind of sounds like E minor nine, right? That's just a chord quality, and so but instead of whatever I just did there, I could I mean I just made that up, so I'll make up a different version of E minor nine. Something like that, you know, and then I'll do like C sharp minor seven. That sounds where I might play something. Or I could do something else over C sharp minor seven, like right. So you know, so the idea is when you and I and I give you a written out version, 
Right. You know, but then the idea is you could go and you could work out these kinds of ideas. And you can hear it doesn't sound like swing. It's not swing. It's not really that bluesy or anything. So it, it's got, I think, something that um, violin players could relate to, you know, playing over A major. Right? Like, that's just a that's just the sound of A major. But it's just giving different options. Right, so it's you know it's so it's sort of offering a piece of repertoire that people can play, um, but it's also offering them a little bit of a uh, exercise so that they can explore improvisation in a friendly context. In you know this kind of unaccompanied violin technical world, um, and with a harmonic language that isn't too weird and abstract, and with a rhythmic language that isn't you know too foreign either. Right. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love it. I've I've actually posted a bunch of videos on Instagram of me. Trying to learn how to wow. play this thing. And I didn't even realize that. It's so cool, man. Thank yeah, you. It's, it's gotten a ton of positive feedback from wow. a lot of classical players. They're like, well, you know, I've never heard anything like that. Where do I get the sheet music? And yeah, I've had over a thousand um, violinists have downloaded it for me from the, the website, which I'm really thrilled about. And, uh, and if you download it from the website, um, you can also, um, if you just look up Jazz Violin Caprice, Christian Howes, it'll probably take you to the blog page where you can get the free download. And then also you'll get... Um, um, you'll get like a series of other freebies from me when you do that over email over the course of a few weeks. So it's been really cool to connect with classical players through the content and and to be in having this conversation just like you're doing and, and with Electric Violin Shop with all the great content you guys are putting out. And we've collaborated. You know, I've just I've so can I just say that I've so enjoyed my partnership with Electric Violin Shop. I'm so proud to know you guys as human beings and. Um, you know, from you and Duncan and Chris, so proud to see what you guys have done now as a um, employee-owned collaborative company. I'm not sure what you call it, but I mean, just uh, you know, this customer service that you guys deliver, the value you provide. You know, to have that connection with you know, kind of a company that I feel partnered with. Um, that shares those values and that I'm always learning from and feel like there's this collaborative, synergistic... It just feels great, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, you know, I, for our listeners, you may know that um, a guy named Blaze Keeler started the Electric Violin Shop many years ago um, and then had brought on um, Chris Gouin and Susie Sneringer and, and Duncan Monsterud, and those guys have been there. And just in the last year or so, Blaze retired... And um, Chris and Susie and Duncan formed a cooperative, and they actually bought the business through the co-op. So it's, it is a worker-owned co-op, which is so awesome. In, in the music business, just so many things are cooperative and collaborative in the, in the music business anyway. So the business model now just really fits that. And, uh, and like you said, I've, I've came in part-time just a couple years ago and, and just to, to sort of supplement what I'm doing, playing, and it offers a lot of doors to me that wouldn't have opened before. Um, but they, they really are. Susie and Chris and Duncan and, uh, and now our luthier is Jamie, Susie's husband. Um, so really it's, it's a very family feel. Um, it's not uncommon to come in and one of us, our kids are there because, you know, a babysitter fell through or uh, I lost power in my house one time. I had to bring my dog to work <laughs> and my dog Cassius is just running around the place because it's just, it's a total family atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and because we're a business, we have to have policies and that sort of thing. But is is they're always, if they're going to be bent, they're going to be bent toward the benefit of the customer. 
because that we're we're not a huge corporation. We're not a Sam Ash. We're not a guitar center, and every customer is important to us. So it's important to know that you know anything we can do that's the right thing for our customer, and that's what we're going to do. Now, sometimes the right thing for your customer is for you to stay in business. Right, and that's the same thing when when you're Absolutely. an artist who's booking shows. The right thing for for your clients is for you to be able to pay your bills. That's right. Um, can't you know, help you can't help somebody else. You can't help yourself. Right, we're not giving stuff away, but we all we your main focus has to be on customers. Yes, but you do give away so much value. I mean, uh, from the content that you're producing, and this is a big investment it takes for you guys to create all this YouTube content, right. podcast content, Facebook content. You're answering questions from people twenty pretty much. I mean, pretty much twenty four seven. It is. I'm, I'm, I'm. My phone. All this stuff goes to my yeah. phone. I can tell you, it's twenty four seven. And I mean, that's. You know, I've always said. Um, you know, that it's it's the, the 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 customer support on the phones, electric violin shop. I, that's the thing I always mention. It's the first thing I mention. But it's not just that. It is all the other content we have. We've partnered in a lot of content together. Uh, I think one of the most popular uh, po- uh, videos. That I've done is now is actually hosted on the Electric Violin Shop channel, <laughs> and it's called something like you know Electric Violin Effects. And yeah, yeah, your effects video is great. Thousand, you know, views on there, and now you know, and and of course, uh, Electric Violin Shop is a has been a the whole time sponsoring Creative Strings podcast, my podcast, and now I'm thrilled to be involved with Rockstar Violinist podcast and and learning from you and learning from what you guys are doing. Um, like I said, it's just it's it feels it's really important. It means a lot to me. Well, thanks so much for doing the interview, guys. We're actually going to let you go. Uh, we're going to let you hear a little bit of Christian's playing on the way out, and then uh, and he and I we're going to go play with some gear. So um, yeah, Woo-hoo. 